All right, my name's Eddie. I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you, uh, Laura and Pej, for asking me to come share my experience, strength, and hope. Sean, thanks for leading the meeting. Casey, thanks for your message. Uh, all the readers, I want to thank uh, Sean M. personally for, for reading tonight. Uh, it's pretty cool. I'm sitting here. I am actually in Boynton Beach, Florida right now. So, uh, it is 11.08 at night. And, um, so I lived in California for a little bit. Now I live in Boynton Beach, Florida, but we got Boynton in here. We got, I think, South Dakota, right? And that, is that where you're from? And then we got Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I'd say in Dusky, Ohio. There we go. There we go. And, uh, California and Northern parts of California. So it's pretty cool that we're all just in the zoom world. And, uh, you know, Pej text messaged me the other day and he said, Hey man, are you still, uh, going to speak on the 31st? Cause I was living in California and then I moved to Florida January 3rd. And I was like, yeah, I was like, wait a second. Is it in person or is it in zoom? Like, do I have to get my ticket now? <laughs> or like, am I flying back? And he's like, no, you're good. And, um, you know, Casey, thanks again, man. Uh, you're just such a dear friend. And, you know, anytime I ask you to do something or show up or just hang out or talk, like, you know, over the last nine months to a year, uh, we became extremely close. So it doesn't matter that you weren't wearing a suit and tie. And, like, the big book talks about half measures avail us nothing. But I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't wearing shorts on underneath um, with the suit top. So, like, you know, I mean, half measures are working right this second. Um, I sent a picture earlier. But, um, you know, now that all the segues are done, um, my sobriety date is July 9th, 2009. I have a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I sponsor gentlemen. And I have a home group. My home group still right now is the Buy the Book meeting on Tuesday nights in Laguna hills uh meet on zoom and then i just moved here to boynton beach california and i just joined a home group on mondays easy does it club uh so yeah right and um really i'm not going to talk too much about like what the literature talks about but casey did well i'm going to talk about what the literature talks about but i'm not going to read word for word from the big book Right. Um, but what I will say is that in the big book, it talks about talking about the common peril and the common solution. So like tonight, I wanted to talk about the common peril and why I'm here in Alcoholics Anonymous and then the common solution as to why I'm here in Alcoholics Anonymous. The first tradition, which is all about unity, is exactly what that says in the big book. It talks about how we all come together and talk about our common peril and our common solution, which binds us all together. Right. And um I was taught that here in Alcoholics Anonymous, but, uh, you know, real simply, I'll talk about like where I came from. Uh, I live in Boynton Beach, Florida right now, but uh, I'm originally from the suburbs of Philadelphia. It doesn't really make me an alcoholic, just where I'm from. Uh, I am the youngest of four kids. doesn't make me an alcoholic, just where I'm from. I'm the brother of a recovering alcoholic, a brother of a sister who should probably be in these shoes and uh, a mother who probably should be here as well, too. Um, so alcoholism runs rampant in my family. And uh, since I was at a young age, I was, um, I'll never forget it, my first drink. I was eight years old 
And uh, I took a drink when I was eight years old and it wasn't because like, I thought that I was going to get hammered and that I was going to find the solution to everyday life. Right. I didn't think at eight years old that this was going to be like God's gift given to me. What I did know is that somebody handed me a jar of whiskey and asked me if I wanted to drink it. And I had just met that person hours earlier who was a family member. And I said, yes, not because I was going to get loaded, not because I was going to feel free, not because I was going to get that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, only because I wanted another individual to like me. Right. That's why I said yes. And I remember I took a sip of that whiskey. I regurgitated it. I threw it right back up and something in me took another swig. Right. And um, my story doesn't go off to the races at that point. It's not like, you know, I was living under a bridge at nine years old and then like 10 years old, you know, had one shoe and a sock. It's just not how my story goes. But, uh, you know, later on, you know, I get into being 10, 11, 12 years old. And I was the kid that always grew up in the neighborhood where the parents always looked at me and said they would tell their kids, hey, you should probably hang out with that kid, Eddie. Look at their family over there. You know, their family looks really nice and Eddie's a good kid. He plays sports, you know, he's respectful to the parents and stuff. And, you know, um, here I am in my little league baseball uniform at 12 years old, drinking beers and smoking my mom's merit ultralights by myself, right? Not with anybody, not having fun, anything like that. But I was introduced to it at a young age and I was around it and, you know, I had drank with friends here and there when we were like 10, 11 years old. You know, it was like the cool thing. It's like you got your stomach pumped when you were 12. Like you were like the cool kid in school, apparently. Um, but I didn't have I didn't get my stomach pumped, you know, but like my friend did. And I was like, you are so cool, you know, and uh, like night before Easter, I'll never forget. God rest his soul. He's a, a dear friend of mine, Albert T. He um he ended up passing away recently, but I remember he got a stomach pump the night before Easter when we were like 12 years old. And like, we all thought it was great. Like, you know, we were all upset that he had got sick, but like leading up to that, everything was like grand. And like, I wasn't raised that way. It's not, I, I did not come from a home where my parents were using all the time. Right. Um, and uh, here I am and I share this story all the time, but like, here I am at 12 years old, sitting in my um, Timberwolves Little League baseball uniform, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and I'm actually living at my brother's house right now in Boynton Beach until I find an apartment here, right? And it was my brother's high school graduation, and my family wanted me to go to the graduation, and I said no. So alcohol has been making decisions for my life since I was 12 years old, even though I didn't know that at that time. I knew that once I got here, and you guys told me that, right? So I said, no, I'm not going to go to the graduation because I want to sit in front of a 19-inch tube TV, play Super Nintendo, and drink those beers and smoke those Merit Ultralights. So I'll never forget that anything that I thought was wrong felt right. So I'm sitting here, and I'm in front of a 19-inch tube TV. I'm playing Super Nintendo. I forget what game, but like I'm drinking this Molson Ice, and I drink the first one. I'm like, oh, this feels really good, right? So I go outside to the garage and I grab another one and I'm drinking the other one all before I'm waiting to get picked up for baseball game. So I start feeling really good, right? I'm like two beers deep playing this game and I think that I'm loaded, right? Like I'm like, yo, I got a nice little buzz on. I can go to the baseball game, I'm sitting here and I'm like, 
And then I read it and it actually says that I was drinking non-alcoholic beer the whole entire time. So like, I like, I was 12 and it, but it felt, it was wrong. It wasn't about like the actual drinking it at that time. It was that I knew that it was wrong. So like so anything that got me outside of myself was why I'm here in Alcoholics Anonymous and at 1115 speaking at a meeting right now. Right. But then the kicker was the next day I went to school, probably at the baseball game. I probably told a people, a couple people that I was loaded. I really wasn't loaded, but like, I just wanted somebody to like me a little bit because I thought that I could get some acceptance from that. And, um, you know, the things we do. And then all of a sudden I was introduced to other substances at a young age as well. You know, some people with smoking weed out of an apple, normally you eat apples. I thought that you could smoke out of them and uh, I found a way to, um, so would smoke weed out of an apple and then eat it afterwards. And, you know, I had this um, Tupperware container that I would mix all the liquor together and I would put it under a rock in my backyard. And like, I wasn't one of those smart ones. I didn't put the clear liquor with the clear liquor and the dark liquor with the dark liquor. I just put it all together in one little Tupperware container. I put it out back in the yard. Right. And I would a ask my friends to hang out afterwards and yeah, I like think about this story and how I talk about this. And I'm just like, wow, you know, like what you have all taught me here of like, at that moment in time, I had no idea. I had no idea what the next nine years of my life would be treacherous hell. I had no idea. So by the time I went to middle school, I'm like playing football, I'm, a, uh, I'm wrestling, I'm playing football, I play baseball. And even when I was 13 years old, I had a decision to make. And the decision was to stay in public school or go to Catholic school. My mom and dad had gone to the same Catholic school. My brothers and sisters went to the Catholic school. My aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody went to this Catholic school. Nobody had a decision to stay in public school except for me. So here I am in eighth grade and my parents are like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to public school or do you want to go to Catholic school? I was like, you know what? I think I need a change. Like something told me that like what I was doing was not right. And I was probably going down the wrong path. And that if I stayed this way and I was always part of the crowd, like the popular crowd, but I was always the one that was made fun of in that crowd. I'll be real with you. Like I wasn't like King Dingling. It was like, I was the one that got made fun of and I always felt out of place. So I started making my geographic moves by the time I was 13 years old. Cause I thought that if I left this school and I just went to this new high school that was 20 minutes away, I could make new friends and everything would be okay. Right. But then I couldn't even tell the truth to myself. I always had to lie to myself. So I went into school the next day to all my friends in the public school. And I said, can you believe this? My mom and dad are making me go to this Catholic school when really it was my decision to make. Right. But like alcohol and drugs at that time were making that decision for me. Once again, had no idea, had no idea that they were making that decision for me. So I go to this high school and like, lo and behold, geographic change doesn't change anything. I just start smoking more weed but I start excelling and like I am, I'm an, I'm an athletic kid and uh, I become uh, all state in wrestling. Um, uh, by the time I'm a senior in high school, I'm the student body president or vice president of my student body. Pretty like second honor student, get into all the colleges that I want to go to. And like, but here I am drinking screw, screwdrivers on the way to um, student council homeroom. Right. Thinking that I have everybody fooled. Right. And, um, 
then other substance started to get into my life. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about this and I, w- I want to respect Alcoholics Anonymous because like Alcoholics Anonymous, what I've learned here is that it's what happens when I have, what happens to me in between drinks. When I put a drink in my body, I take other substances. That's my story. Right. So it all boils back down to that drink that I had when I was eight years old. And like, you know, that is, this is my experience. And, you know, these other substances started to come into, into play here. And here I am. And I don't know if you can, um, I would imagine that most of you here in this room can identify with what I'm about to say right now. But I'm a senior in high school. I have division one scholarships to wrestle in college. Um, I had regular other schools that I could have went to as well, too. And uh, I applied to these four different schools and I get into all four schools. And um, here I am not being able to live everyday life without putting something in my body. Like it started off on the weekends, the weekends turned to nights, the nights turned to days and the days turned to mornings. And um, by the time I was graduating, I had to make a decision as to what college I was going to go to. And uh, like, you know, when, when you're sick, right. And you got the shakes or you got the tremors or like, you know, you're withdrawing, whatever that is, you know, what's going to make you well. Right. And whether, and like the liquor store opens at 10 AM, you know, that at nine 45, like that little bit of physical relief comes about because you know, in 15 minutes, you're about to go get well. Right. So for me to get well, when I was in high school, I lived 45 minutes from where I knew I had to get well. So I specifically went to college in North Philadelphia where I knew I could get well and have to reduce that little minimal amount of time for that physical relief. Lying to myself the entire time, telling myself like, no, it was because it was a nice sunny day when I toured the campus that day. Like I knew exactly why I went there. Right. Because the liquor store was on one corner of 17th and Jefferson and my guy was on the other corner. Right. Because I could grab something from the bodega when I looked like, you know, I look like I'm 25 right now. When I was 18, I looked like I was 13 and somehow I get served on the bodega corner. I don't know. It worked. You know, um, it got me in this meeting. And um, so I ended up going to college and uh, I'm just empty inside. Right. I'm just broken. I was raised to, to do things that were right. My dad would tell me to go left and I went right. He told me to go right and I went left. It just, it's just the way that I was wired. And, um, you know, my older brother who's in recovery, he's upstairs sleeping right now. But um, it's funny, those subtle little things, like he went through the same stuff that I went through. And I remember him saying little small things to me, even about smoking cigarettes, like you better not smoke cigarettes, dude, because he did it. Right. But we came from the family where he wouldn't say, like, don't do it because I did it. It was just that you're not supposed to do it. Like, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Like, that's how it was. Right. And um, but I kept going and I kept going. And, you know, by the time I was a junior in high school or junior in college, uh, none of my friends wanted anything to do with me anymore. Um, I had been evicted from my house. Uh, I was living in. um I was homeless, but like the kicker here is that like I was homeless, but I never called my parents and said, could I come back home? Right. I just like convinced myself that I was not allowed back home because they were done with me. I'm sure if I called them and asked them if I could come back home, they would have let me back home. 
right? Because I had done that before. So here I am in Liberty One in Philadelphia, living in the mall, um, and then couch surfing here and there. And uh, it was Thanksgiving break, and I went back home to my dad and mom's house. So I go home for Thanksgiving break, and uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving, if you've been to college, right, you know that after Thanksgiving break, you literally have one week of school and then finals. And then, like, school is over for the semester. So I, in return, on Sunday, my dad goes, okay, I'm going to drive you back to your house. And I was like, ah, kind of about that. I don't really have one of those. He's like, well, what do you mean? Like, I was like, yeah, my roommates kind of kicked me out. And he's like, you don't just kind of get kicked out. Like, you know, like you got kicked out. And it's the same house that my dad, one Christmas, one Christmas was hilarious. I think it's hilarious. The Christmas before that Thanksgiving break, my dad came into my house at like, I don't know, I, th- I guess it was like 930, 10 o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning. And all of a sudden he's waking me up in my house and I'm like, whoa, how did you get in here? And he just like points to the door and my keys are in the door. So like somehow I made it back to my house. So anyways, I digress. So my dad says, well, that, you know what? I'm just going to drive you to school tomorrow. I was like, you know what? I've been thinking that through too. And I'm not going to go to school. He's like, what do you mean? And like, you learn it here. Like at that time in my, in my act of alcoholism, I was lying, I was stealing and I was cheating. And the reality was, is that I was a good kid that was raised with morals and values that I didn't want to lie. I didn't want to steal and I didn't want to cheat. I really did not want to do those things. But in order to get well every day, I had to do those things in order to make sure that I could fulfill that malady of the spirit. I had to do those things, right? There was no choice. Like there was no choice. If I had a choice, I wouldn't have done those things because I tried everything. So I, I dropped out of college because I figured that if I could get a job and work 24 seven, I would make enough money to not have to lie, to not have to steal and to not have to cheat. So I literally dropped out of college to sell speakers out of the back of a van because I thought that that was the solution to make sure that life was going to be okay. Right. So like my dad was like, what do you mean you're not going back to school? I said, no, I got it. I got this great idea. And you told me that if I'm not in college and I work full time, I can live with you. I can pay rent and I can work full time. So I've already negotiated how much I'm going to pay you for rent to live in your house. So like every month I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. Not like my dad like told me, I just presented it. I was like, I'm going to pay you a hundred dollars for rent. You didn't tell me how much rent ever had to be, but it's going to be a hundred dollars and I'm going to sell speakers. He's like, where are you selling speakers? And I was like, he said, where circuit city best buy. And I was like, no, in the parking lot of Circuit City and Best Buy, I'm going to drive around in this van and I'm going to ask all the people in the parking lot if, you know, yo, you got a, I got a crazy question. You got a home entertainment system because a few of them just fell off the truck. And you know what? I made a little bit of money. And guess what? I convinced my dad to go drive me to my first day of work that Monday. I think I had him fooled. Like, I thought that that was my solution, that that was my plan. Like, this is what I was going to amount to. Life was going to be great. Life was going to be grand. And for the next two years, two and a half years, I continued to give myself uh, more unnecessary pain. More and more unnecessary pain. And um, the dog's barking upstairs. I think I'm being a little loud. Uh, 
dog's about to come down. They're not as big as your dog's pet. This one's like a little white dog that's fluffy, but whatever. Um, back to what I was saying. So uh, I go through this unnecessary pain. And uh, what hurts me the most is like, I left that job after about two full weeks, right? And uh, I started to bartend, right? I started to bartend even before I was 21 years old. And I figured, you know, if I bartended and it was bar back, I had full access to anything that I could get my hands on, right? I could drink at all times. I could do anything I needed to at all times. I wasn't 21. I looked like I was 12. So like, you know, I'll stock the beer case all day, every day, you know? Um, and then, you know, I ended up getting fired from the same bar three times in the same year because the owner really liked me because I could always smooth talk my way out of it, but he always wanted to come back. And, you know, I would tell him that I got sober again, like everything was okay. And it's not the booze, it's the drugs that I'm really bad at, you know? So like, Hey, I'm not taking those Oxycontins anymore. You know, you can let me come back. Okay. Well, if you're not doing that, come on back. And then I would just go back to drinking and you know, I put the drink in my body and I go eat some more Oxycontin the next day. So that's what I mean in the sense of when I put a drink in my body, it doesn't matter. I go and do something else. It starts with that drink. And um, I continue to live that way of life. And uh, I ended up making different changes in my life where I thought, well, like if I leave, I've never left the Philadelphia region, right? Grew up in the suburbs, went to school in the city, never left the Philadelphia region. If you know anything about the Northeast, the furthest I ever went was Wildwood, New Jersey. And if I went to Wildwood, New Jersey, I was back every 24 hours. So I come to another geographic. Well, first it was a job. I said, you know what? I'm going to quit the bar. I'm not going to work at the bar anymore. They were like, that's a really good idea. I was like, I know I'm going to be a cashier at a gas station because if I work at the gas station, everything will be okay. Right. Like I was like highly educated, great family. If I work at the gas station, I'm not working in the bar. I won't be in front of the beer. I, it's OK. And, you know, in Pennsylvania, they don't sell beer in the gas stations. You have to, you know, be at a beer distributor. So like it's not like Florida, it's not like California. So if I work in the gas station, I won't be around it. But the gas station was right next to the bar that I used to work at. So I would just leave the gas station. I'd go to the bar and I would come back to the gas station. So like it didn't match up, but like every time I did that, I really wanted to, I, I meant it every time. It was like, if I made this change, it would just work this one time. And every time I was fooled. Right. And, um, you know, and then I moved down to Seattle City, New Jersey, because I figured that if I moved to Seattle City, New Jersey, like I can just stay at my parents' house and like things will just be okay, right? And like I, I won't, I won't be there. I'm not 21 yet. I can't go to the bar. Nobody's here. I don't know anybody. I have no friends. I don't have a fake ID anymore. I can't do this. Plus, my guy that I would cop from wasn't able to come down there. You know, it was too far away. I couldn't cop. I had zero money. Let me just go down there. And then like you walk into the house and, you know, you just pop your head into your parents' bedroom because, you know, that lying, that stealing and that cheating, I was the worst. I wouldn't steal from Sean. I wouldn't steal from Bill. I wouldn't steal from Laura. I would steal from my mom. I would steal from my dad and I would steal from my siblings at first because I knew that I had them to the grip, right? But like, I didn't want Sean to know that I was a bad guy. I didn't want Bill to know that I was a bad guy. I didn't want Laura to know that I was a bad guy. I didn't want Kelly to know those things. I didn't want Pez to know those things. Like my family already knew those things. So you know what? Like, let's keep it in the family. I'm just going to steal from them and I'll feel better about it. 
when really like that was my thought process. And like, I'll get later into when I get sober and how I've worked on that thought process a lot, you know? Um, and like the pain and the destruction that I caused within my family of being such a coward in that, in that standpoint. And, um, you walk into your parents' bedroom and like, you know, in the closet, cause they know that you're an alcoholic, but you don't think that they know that you're an alcoholic and you know, they hide everything and then you find what they hide. And like, you know, you're 20 years old and there's three full bottles of absolute vodka and you're slugging absolute vodka by yourself, putting the water back in thinking that everything's going to be great and grand, forgetting that when your parents came down the next weekend and they throw it in the freezer and then you're out somewhere and you come back and you go to get some ice cream out of the freezer and you see two full bottles of absolute that you've already drank that are full of fuel water, completely frozen to the rod in the, and my dad's like, well, what's this? This is real. I was like, I don't know. You just, you must have just bought it like that. I don't know what to tell you. Right. And like every time, and then it was like, get out of the house. You can't be here. Right. And, um, so then I really, uh, started going down and like, I started making decisions in my life. Like I would have a drink and then, you know, I would hang out with everybody that I thought was a little worse than me. So like if I was an alcoholic and I was drinking and I was trying to get sober, then I would hang out with the person that was shooting heroin because I wasn't shooting heroin, but I was snorting 80 milligram Oxycontins all day. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, when that wasn't good enough and the booze was out of my system and I just wanted to get a little bit better, I would smoke a little crack cocaine. But first, before I smoked crack cocaine, I was snorting cocaine because the guy that I was hanging out with was smoking crack. So I could always point to that person and say that that person's way worse than I am. Right. And then all of a sudden I graduate up to that and then I start smoking crack cocaine and I can't go to sleep. And I know that there's a different life out there and I've seen it firsthand through my parents, through the experience that I've had, but I can't do anything about it. Right. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, you know what, I'm not going to shoot anything because if I shoot anything, that's going to be crazy. But you know what, maybe I'll have a registered nurse who's also a drug addict, just like I am. And if she's a registered nurse, she can do it for me because then it's not really like I'm doing it. I have a medical technician that's actually doing it for me, right? I could justify every purpose of why I did these things. And it all started because I had that drink when I was eight years old and I was deprived inside and my spirit was broken before I even knew I had a spirit. And, um, on June 20th, 2009, I ended up walking into my parents' house and I walked into an intervention and it was my mom and my sister and my dad wasn't there. My brother wasn't there. My family wasn't there. And, um, I walk into this intervention and, and my mom and my sister sit me down and they say, Hey, the gig's up. Like you need help. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, you know what? Like, let's cut it all your friends have been coming over recently and like all my friends from high school, they, all of a sudden, like I turn around and they're all gone. And I feel like they left me. How dare they leave me? How, how can they leave my back? Are you kidding me? When really like I dude, I kept going straight and I never looked back. Right. Cause I had my friend when I felt better, when I put that in, everything felt better to me. And, um, on June 20th, <clears throat> I ended up going in and it was father's day and my dad wasn't there. And, um, I convinced my dad myself that my dad didn't love me. Like he wasn't even a part of this intervention. Like he doesn't care about me. And the reality was, is that he watched his little baby boy, the youngest of his four children slowly kill himself every time he walked out the door and he had no idea what to do with me anymore. And he didn't want to see me die. He didn't know what to do. 
And uh, that's why he wasn't there. It wasn't because he didn't love me. It was just that he literally watched me die every day. Every day I went out and died a little bit more. And um, my mom and my sister sit me down. They tell me that the gig's up and they tell me that I need help. And they tell me that my friend had like ratted me out. And I was like, ah, you got to be kidding me. The gig's up. And uh, my mom said, you need to make a phone call. So um, she handed me a manila folder and uh, I had no insurance at that time. Um, I had this... You know, this was before like Obamacare and everything like that. No insurance, lives in Philadelphia, didn't even have Medicaid, nothing. But my mom was willing to send me to detox, right? And so I literally opened up this manila folder and I just called the first number on the first page. And this lady answered the phone and her name was Laura. And I can remember it was like yesterday. I was downstairs in my parents' basement. And um, this lady had a kind caring compassionate voice and um i started to cry i didn't cry because i thought that i was going to embark on some journey of recovery i cried because i just went like this and it was a break i had been running for so long and i had been working so hard just to fill this deep hole within my within my soul and um I started to cry and I started to answer her questions. And she said, you know, we have a bed for you here. And uh, I said, okay, um, okay, I'm gonna come. So I hung the phone up with her and I went up to my mom and I said, look, they said that they have a bed for me. And my mom was like, all right, let's go. And I was like, whoa, I don't have any clean underwear. I don't have cigarettes. I don't have anything. We can't go yet. And just like that, from crying on the phone with this lady to like, wait a second, now it's real. And I remember I had $80 in my pocket and my mom was the last person to dip my pockets. She literally went right into my front pocket and she saw the cash and she ripped the cash out. She said, well, you got $80. I'm going to buy you a pack of, pack of underwear and a carton of cigarettes. We're going to treatment right now. And I was like, no, because all I wanted to do was just get that last one. I wanted to get that hurrah. So she drove me to Kmart. We bought a carton of, uh, I think I was smoking Parliament Menthol, or Parliament Menthol Lights at that time because I loved putting a little cocaine in the bottom, snorting it when I was doing that. So she bought me a carton of cigarettes. She ended up getting me a pack of underwear and uh, we went to treatment and uh, I was sick. I didn't have anything in me. I didn't, I was withdrawing when this all happened. I had nothing in me. And, um, I just wanted to go out and get well one last time, right? So I lay down in the back of this, um, in the back of my mom's car, and we drive. And I'm not paying attention to where we're at. We could have drove for three hours for all I knew. Maybe it was like an hour. It, it ended up being like an hour and 20 minutes from my parents' house. But, like, it could have been, like, forever. And I was just, like, curled up, you know, shaking in the back seat. And we get to this treatment facility, and they drop me off, and uh, – you know, I go in, I do the intake and, uh, I get my first dose and I feel, start feeling really well. And, um, I remember it was a gratitude meeting, the first meeting that I went to at this treatment facility and, uh, the gratitude meeting, you go around the room and, you know, you introduce yourself and they were like, yo, the new guy's here, you know, like new guy, new guy, like, just like when I came into the rooms, like, it was like new guy, new guy. So I end up sharing and uh, I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't know what I'm doing here, but like, thanks for letting me 
share. And they were like, Oh, we support you. And, um, mind you, that was June 20th, 2009. And, uh, right away I was in a treatment facility and I linked up with the two people that I knew and God put these two people in my life because he knew that I wasn't ready at that time. And, um, on July 9th, 2009, I woke up from a blackout in that treatment facility. So for 19 days, I continued to use in that treatment facility. And we found ways to get high and we found ways to drink in this treatment facility. And uh, the last thing I used and I, you know, the last thing I drank was Pabst Blue Ribbon in the treatment facility on the other side of the pond where we used to leave a 12 pack because somebody would go to the bar that was a couple miles down and leave a couple 12 packs on the other side of the barn and we would drink them and the last drink I had was on July 8th, 2009, ate a couple Xanax and woke up on July 9th from blackout. And, um, I did not wake up and think that like God had saved me and that like my heart was like filled with joy and that things were going to be better. I woke up because God did something for me that I could not do for myself. And he had those two gentlemen that were uh, supplying me at that facility. They discharged they left the facility that day and it wasn't until I came into these rooms and realized like staying sober one day at a time that like God saw fit to remove those people from my life because he also sees fit to put people in my life when I need them the most because at that time he removed them because if it was not for him removing those individuals from my life I might not be speaking here tonight and uh, on July 9th I don't ever want to feel the way that I felt on the first day that I came in here I was scared I was broken I was physically broken I was mentally broken I was spiritually broken and you know Casey talked about those three aspects of the disease of alcoholism and all three of them were full in effect and um I ended up leaving that facility and like, I thank that facility for everything that they did for me. God brought me to that treatment facility, but it was hospitals and institutions. And it was the guys from H and I that saved my life while I was in that treatment facility. And it was, the, it was at that point where I first heard the message. Right. And I had these individuals come in and share with me and, and, and share their story. And I remember the one guy, Michael, he had uh, 90 days and, guy Tom who ended up being my first sponsor had two years and they came in and they didn't look gray and they had smiles on their face and it was Friday night and like I believed everything that they said I believed that they were doing it because it was I didn't think that they were getting paid I didn't think that they were leaving and smoking a little bit of weed on the weekends or like drinking a couple shots before they came in like that wasn't me I believed that they were sober I just did not believe that I was capable of achieving what they were doing. And I left that treatment facility. And um, while I was waiting for that treatment facility, I ended up, uh, I ended up going to a meeting that night, my first meeting that I went to. And uh, I was scared. I was shook. My dad dropped me off at the meeting and he ended up handing me a, um, he ended up handing me a dollar and said, Hey, I don't really know what goes on in there, but I'm pretty sure they pass a basket around. So here's a dollar so that you feel a part of. Right. And my dad drove me to my first meeting and uh, I walk into that meeting and I remember saying to myself, like, I'm cool as cash. I just put on 20 pounds at the treatment facility. I'm looking a little tan. It's summertime, you know, probably spiked my hair up a little bit, put on my fresh new kicks and, uh, I walk in and I sat my ass in the first seat next to the door in the last row and I put my head down and I realized that I was a scared little boy and I didn't know how to live and I didn't know how to live without drinking. 
And all of a sudden I get a tap on my shoulder and it's this kid that had been visiting his girlfriend at the facility I was at that day. And he goes, yo, didn't I just see you leave a treatment facility today? He's like, yo, what are you doing sitting here? You should probably sit in the front row, get your hand up and tell everybody that you need help. I was like, oh my gosh, the guys from H&I didn't lie to me. They told me that people were going to do this. They were going to love me until I learned to love myself. This is phenomenal, right? And then it was funny because that kid nodded out the entire meeting. And like, but you know what? That kid was put into my life. And, you know, I wish, I hope he's doing well. But like that dude literally took me from the last row and put me right in the middle of the meeting, which is what the triangle talks about and unity and what actually takes place here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we take the new guy and Jay, welcome and, and congrats on 30 days. And like, you know, you can help the guy with, you know, one day, but you put that guy right in the middle of the room and we don't let him out. And that's exactly what that kid Sean did for me that day. And, um, I got a sponsor and I started to go through these steps and I started to do a 90 and 90. I didn't even know 90 and 90 meant hit 90 meetings in 90 days. It was just that Pez said it one time. So I was like, 90, 90, that's what I'm doing. Right. Where like KC would, KC would spit something from the book. And I would say like, whatever KC said, cause I thought KC was cool for saying whatever he was saying. And like, you know, that's just how we did it. I was a chameleon when I came around here cause I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, I ended up, uh, when I had about 90 days, my sponsor used that guy, Tom used. And, uh, I was like done. And mind you, I had gotten sober in another fellowship and I know I have 10 minutes left and, uh, I had first gotten sober in another fellowship uh, and I'm going to share a little bit moving forward. But the first time I went through the steps was from another fellowship that derived from Alcoholics Anonymous and without Alcoholics Anonymous, that fellowship wouldn't have been around. Right. And, um, my, um, my first sponsor at the time knew that my second sponsor who sponsored me for seven years knew that I was new and knew that my sponsor had just used. And it was at that point that a gentleman had showed me what love, care, compassion was not because he told me that he was loving not because he told me he was caring not because he told me he was compassionate and that he had empathy and sympathy for me every day this gentleman called me i was a stranger to him and he called me every day and he'd ask me two questions he would say eddie did you drink or get high today and i'd say no then he'd say did you have a good day or a great day and a good day meant that everything went right and i didn't pick up And a great day meant that everything went wrong and I didn't pick up. And for 30 days, that gentleman called me every day and asked me those questions. Those were the best 30 days because he showed me what it was like to care selflessly for another individual. And you know what? He was doing it because it was keeping him sober at the same time. But he knew that I was a scared little kid. And then I eventually ended up asking him to sponsor me and we flourished in this relationship and, you know, went through the steps and had a great time and, you know, accepted that I was an alcoholic and, you know, that uh, a higher power could restore me to sanity and turn my will and my life over and searching fearless moral inventory, share that searching fearless moral inventory with myself, another human being and God, and then start to work on those character defects that I have and, you know, the character defects and the shortcomings that come from them and then start to make that list of amends and not really ready to actually make those amends, but don't worry because I'm just writing them down at this time because I can take care of that in nine and start to actually make those living amends and change my behaviors and actions, 
you know, 10, doing the daily inventory and 11, deepening my relationship with the God and 12, in order to keep this, we must give this away. And, you know, life was great. Life was grand, you know, and um, right around the time I had about five, six years, I, um, I started to slip away a little bit, right? But it was okay. I was staying in contact, but I wasn't really sponsoring anybody. I wasn't doing a 12-step. I wasn't helping. I wasn't keeping this in order to give it away, right? And um, I ended up moving from Philadelphia area to Washington, D.C. And uh, I go down there, and guess what? Very quickly, with seven years... I'm not deepening a relationship with a higher power. That daily inventory, I was doing it, but I sure shit was lying about it. And, you know, then in nine, that amends, what, what amends? Eight, that list just kept getting longer and longer. Seven, those shortcomings come back. I'm acting out on every character defect that I have. You know, I'm not doing, uh, I'm not sharing any of my actions and my old behaviors because what are old behaviors when you're actually doing them now you know i'm taking my will back in three you know i have no higher power to restore me to sanity in seven years here i am the only thing i'm doing is acting out uh, and, and actively working my first step right and not using but guess what my life is unmanageable even when i take that booze out of my body and here I am, a shell of a human being with a great new job. The outside looks great, just like I was when the little kid, when everybody wanted their kids to hang out with me. And here I am living in Washington, D.C., and I'm a broken, broken individual. And um, it was, um, I had seven years, and uh, I had a, a, an individual that I was working with at the time was actually sober. And uh it doesn't matter how much time you have. It could be a guy that has less time than you, a guy that has more time than you, a woman, because like, I believe men stick with the men and women stick with the women. But I tell you that women taught me how to be a man here in Alcoholics Anonymous and in the other fellowship. They taught me how to respect women. They told me how to be a better individual, be in relationships. But this gentleman, Matt, Matt L in Washington, DC saved my life when I had seven years. And, uh, he called me up and he said, Eddie, I know that you go to this other fellowship and stuff, but I want you to come over. I'm doing something with the sponsee on, uh, on Saturday. So I go over to his house and he sits me and his sponsee down and we do this thing called stick man. And we go over the, the three um, aspects of the disease of alcoholism. But before we do that, we start talking about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. So here I am with seven years. I had been attending another fellowship for that seven year period of time. I started to live a life that was just not spiritually fit. And then all of a sudden I start hearing about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and you go back to actually when Bill actually makes that phone call, right? before he ever meets Bob and he's a, and, and he's in that phone booth and he makes that phone call and talks about that history and it talks about the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when Bill and Bob finally get together and the magic that actually takes place in there. At that point in my time, I remember sitting and being so judgmental at meetings where I would sit at the speaker and I'd be like, look at that guy wearing a shirt and a tie. I'll never do that. I'm going to go back there with my backwards hat because that's what I like to wear. And here I am sitting with a shirt and a tie because of the respect of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and what they did for me and what they did for everybody else in this room tonight so that we could continue to carry this message of Alcoholics Anonymous so that we can continue to get a piece over one day at a time. And, uh, 
my life was changed. My heart, my spirit was resuscitated again. And I went back through the steps again. And I started to realize that I had been working the 12 steps backwards for the last four years. And that I needed to be reintroduced and go through the big book. And we went through the blank page to 164 and I had a sponsor. And then lo and behold, God started putting people in my life at that time. Right. I'm living in Washington, DC, and things just start to become more apparent to me. And, you know, a year before I moved to California, God put this gentleman in my life. His name's Pat. And, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., and I, and, and I was broken still. I was just coming together, right? It was just coming together. No idea that I was going to move to California, and all of a sudden, this dude from California speaking at a meeting, Pej is in D.C. at the same time. I'm like, who are these cats? You know, I don't really, whatever. But I connect with them, and um, about once a month for about a year, I stay in touch with this individual. And then all of a sudden I got a job promotion and I move out to California and God said, see, I told you that's why I put that individual in your life 12 months ago, because I saw what happened when you left Philadelphia and went to Washington DC and you start to work those steps backwards. So I'm going to give you a little heads up that I put somebody in your life at that given time. So that when you go out to California, you don't have to make the same mistakes that you made once before. Because failure can be experience, strength, and hope in disguise. I was told that one time. I was told that failure can be experience, strength, and hope in disguise if you take what you have done and you learn from that instrument and you change your behavior. And the one thing that I didn't do is I didn't pick up under any and all circumstances, and I white-knuckled it. And I will tell you, it is not fun to be that individual that is not getting the relief from the solution of the 12 steps and not getting the relief from the booze either. Not at all. But the relief that this gives me far exceeds anything that the booze ever gave me. The delayed gratification that I've learned here through practicing the spiritual principles that are instilled within the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. And now here I am and I just left Washington or I just left California and, you know, I'm coming over to um, Florida back to the East Coast and I miss everybody dearly that I've made so many relationships with in California over the last two years but I ended up getting another job promotion and I end up moving over to Florida but like my brother lives here and like talk about like things that actually line up and if you just stay sober and you just see the magic that actually takes place here I get here I accept this position uh, on December December 1st is when I started the position. I moved here on January 3rd, but on Christmas, my brother calls me on Christmas with his wife, right? And they're on FaceTime. And uh, they're like, hey, you want to know what we got Marty for for Christmas? I'm like, yeah, what? And they like put up this ugly, uh, one minute, right? They put up this ugly New Balance shoe on the screen, right? It's like the old... No offense, everybody that's in the meeting, but like the old man New Balance shoe, right? And I'm like, yo, those are like, I was like, yo, they're so nice, like cool. And then it dawned on me and I was like, you're going to be a dad. I was like, oh my gosh, you're going to be a dad. That is awesome. And I got so excited. So like I accept this new job to then live and move to Southern Florida where my brother is now has his wife pregnant and now I'm going to have a niece or a nephew, whatever's running around and I'm going to be right here. 
right? Like things happen for this purpose, this reason. And like, I wake up and it's whenever I want to fulfill the purpose that I believe, I know I got to take a step back and say, Hey God, you know what? Like maybe you should step in here and take the reins. Right. And, um, Look, I'm so grateful that I was asked to share my experience tonight. Uh, I want to thank uh, the home group for having me. I want to thank Casey, everybody who participated in their recovery tonight. And, you know, um, my uh, my sponsor always says, like, you know, get a sponsor, get a home group, and, you know, get a sponsor who cares about, your, cares about you more than your feelings. So, um, you know, my name's Eddie. I'm an alcoholic, and uh, thanks for letting me share.